0: Please open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This past summer, when filling the pulpit for Blake for a couple of Sundays, I decided I'd just continue going through 2 Corinthians if and when the opportunity arose so while it may be a little disconcerting to just dive right back in a letter that we haven't been in since january of 21 i'll try to help us see the context context that we're swimming in as we go along as most of us are probably aware the corinthian church that paul founded was going through some very big problems and issues made even worse by an influx of false teachers. And after his year and a half ministry there in person, Paul had gone on to other places, continuing to spread the gospel. When he received disturbing news about what was going on in Corinth, he wrote a letter that we don't have in the New Testament that confronted these issues. We learned that in 1 Corinthians 5.9, he mentions that letter. On Paul's third missionary journey, while in Ephesus, there was even more troubling news from the Corinthian church. And Paul then wrote 1 Corinthians, what we have as 1 Corinthians, to them, and he sent Timothy. False teachers claiming to be apostles also landed in Corinth, undermining Paul and his teaching in the process. This was so dangerous that he found a way to leave Ephesus and went to Corinth. Paul called this visit the painful visit in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1. In other words, it didn't go well. Someone even openly took Paul to task At that church and the Corinthians did nothing about it when Paul got back to Ephesus he wrote another letter that we also do not have known as the severe letter that Paul that's what Paul calls it in chapter 2 verse 4 of this letter and he sent Titus to deliver it now considering the slowness of any type of travel or communication you can imagine Paul's concerned to hear how the Corinthians had taken his severe letter and Titus's delivery of it. You can also imagine how much Paul wanted to meet up with Titus to find out exactly what had happened. Well, Paul and Titus did finally manage to meet in Macedonia, and we know from this letter we are in today, in the last half of chapter 7, that Titus got to tell Paul something amazing, that most of the Corinthians had repented and reaffirmed their loyalty to Paul. I hope we can see the tense joy that that news gave the apostle. And as Paul began preparing to try to get back to Corinth from Macedonia, that's when he wrote, wrote 2 Corinthians. He knew the danger was still there. Why? Because the false apostles were still there. And some people in that church were still confused or even still loyal to those false teachers. That's why this letter is so revealing in nature. Paul vigorously defended his call as a true apostle of Christ against these false apostles and what they were teaching. And in so doing, he managed to make this letter the most personal of all his New Testament letters. What surprises many people is the way Paul reveals what's going on in his own heart as he addresses these issues. We already know that Paul's head is beyond just being brilliant and smart. Most people know that. But now we see just how deeply his heart reflects the love and care of the Lord who saved him. And this includes the willingness to confront those who are divisive and compromising God's truth. In other words, this is a man who answered the call of God in his life with devotion and love that is exemplary he understands what being in christ means so the topics that he addresses are really important for each of us to search out as well if you are able please stand as i read second corinthians chapter 6 we will begin in verse 11 6 and we'll go through chapter 7 Verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what is partnership? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement? has the temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God. As Christ said, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May you be seated. Now, I hope today that each of us can see how Paul's deep devotion to the Lord translates into his deep love and concern for these believers and what that tells us about our own hearts. Since churches are made up of redeemed sinners, it's a daunting task to learn how to be realistic about the troubles we can have instead of acting like there are no real issues and just sweeping everything under the rug. At the same time, however, we also have to learn how to be aware of and rejoice in God's work in our hearts. Paul's directives and encouragements about who we are and the mindset that we should have as we live amongst one another in the church give us purpose and peace and hope as we worship and love and serve him together so let's look at paul's open heart and his appeal for the corinthians to open up theirs in chapter 6 verses 11 13 we read we have spoken freely to you corinthians our heart is wide open You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Now that sounds a little weird uh, to us, that grammar. So I'm picking out Joe's favorite Bible to make it a little clearer. The Christian Standard Bible reads this way. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians, our heart has been opened wide. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. I speak as to my children. As a proper response, open your heart to us. That makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Notice first that there is a we at the beginning, which simply... Includes his associates and who's who were they? Mainly Timothy and Titus, and we see in these verses that Paul is simply opening his heart to them, which he plainly says here. Paul doesn't usually refer to the people he's writing to by name after that initial greeting at the very beginning of a letter, but he does so here, writing you Corinthians and calling them my children in other words this reflects his feelings for them and he has spoken openly to them so how has he spoken openly to them which he said well this is where we get to review just a second he told them about his sufferings in chapter one and explained why he hasn't been able to visit them again also in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and he showed his attitude toward the man who had caused so much trouble in chapter 2 and paul has been revealing what makes him tick in his ministry all through chapter 2 all the way through 6 where we start in other words Paul's been revealing and frank with the Corinthians so they can see how deep his love is and his care is for them. And remember, these letters were read out loud at their church gatherings. So if he had something to address, everybody heard it. He had led many of these people to Christ so there was a bond there between them. In so many ways, he had been their spiritual father. But this bond has been threatened by some. And so Paul appeals to what? He appeals to the relationship he has with this, the people in this church. He says, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. And I speak... As to my children, that's not a down thing to them. He's talking about the relationship he has with them. As a proper response, open your hearts to us. One commentator writes, this is like saying, come on now. It's only right for you to open your hearts to me when I've opened mine to you. That's the plea. Well, how concerned is he about their walk in this life? With the Lord in holiness. Well, let's take this section piece by piece so we can see the connections and what's emphasized. In verses 14 through the first part of 16, he dives right into addressing one of the biggest all consuming problems in Corinth. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness? with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. So first, how is Paul's true and real affection and love for these believers being revealed in this text. How do we know, in other words, how deeply he loves them? Real love, true love, is always concerned for the other person's highest good. And the highest good for a believer is what? Reflecting the good and holiness. Of our Savior how do we know that well in another letter of his he puts it pretty plainly in Romans chapter 8 verses 28 first part of 29 well-known passage here listen carefully and we know that for those who love God All things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. How is what we think is good for us different from what God knows is good for us? We've got to answer this question. How is what we think is good for us different from what God knows is good for us? This is the heart of this passage. We usually think what's good for us, to some degree, is getting what we want, whether we want to control everything or get our way, or enjoy smooth sailing in the dream life. But God knows our highest good, as Paul writes, means knowing Him, our Almighty Creator, better and better as we go through life. This will be seen in our growth in Him, in our devotion to Him, as we discover more and more how much we need him and how faithful he is to his own promises to us. And this is just the beginning of an eternal life with him. He is conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we have signed up for. Paul's real love for the Corinthians comes from the real love from God in saving him. That's why he can address really tough issues and encourage them in our lives, in their lives of faith. And by the way, a genuine believer belongs to a new king and kingdom. And the indwelling Holy Spirit ensures that there will be new desires and affections. We think it would be good to experience all this at once, even while we first learn it. We're all impatient. But God knows that the process of growth in Him usually, almost always happens over the rest of our lives and usually gradually. Now, our Corinthian text here is just the beginning of Paul's appeal to them, which is why we're going through chapter 7, verse 1. He adds Old Testament passages here and some really encouraging personal admonitions, and we must be very careful to correctly define and understand the terms that Paul uses here so that we can apply them to our thinking and living in the ways that God desires. And it's really easy to try to make what Paul says fit into the way we already think. Some of us are really good at this instead of first understanding the context of the problem in corinth that most believers had to deal with and then see how that applies to our crazy world today what is the biggest all-consuming problem in corinth being unequally yoked with unbelievers Paul uses an Old Testament illustration from Deuteronomy 22 to help us the yoking together of an ox and a donkey for plowing, which most of us would know even if we've never seen one, the big problems of being able to work together to make straight furrows, and not to mention the possible injuries to either or both of the animals. Usually one of the first things we think of when we hear this is a believer marrying an unbeliever. And yes, this admonition does forbid this kind of union for a believer. Paul already made this clear in 1 Corinthians 7.39. But Paul's illustration cannot be used to say this should be applied to informal contacts this admonition to be not yoked with them. His illustration involves significant cooperation, does it not? Not normal, not informal contacts. And in 1 Corinthians 5, in two places, Paul is clearly not saying that retreating from the world is required, which is what some in Corinth thought holiness must include. So we've got a problem. There's got to be some middle way between completely withdrawing from the worldly environment and being all in it, so much so that we would be unequally yoked. And part of this consideration involves the understanding that Other types of close associations might involve the danger of compromise for a Christian because a relationship which inevitably leads to compromise, that is what Paul is getting at here. So it should be obvious that every Christian has to give this a lot of prayerful thought. This is not easy to figure out. It's one reason we should be a vital part of a church, so that we can help each other work these things out. We have got to be in the world to influence people for Christ, but we should be aware of the danger of compromise. Again, what kind of relationships in Corinth were causing so many to compromise their faith? Well, let's go through the five questions Paul asked in Verse 14 through 16, the first part of 16, to get our heads going in the right direction. That's the goal. Get our heads going in the right direction here. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? These are rhetorical. Everybody knows the answer. None. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? None. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Ooh, that's harder to say none. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then he says, for we are the temple of the living God. The Lord challenges his people, that's us, to think through important spiritual issues in light of his word. The context of this text, this passage, addresses a separation of the Christian faith from pagan religions, of which there were many in Corinth, one in particular that we can't even describe in the context of a church with different age people one way to say this is that this passage conveys the message not to form covenant relationships with unbelievers that violate the covenant obligations a christian has with god now that's easier to say than it is to figure out how to do it in other words a close and influential relationship with unbelievers who can cause a believer to break covenant with their God, should be prayerfully and seriously thought through before being pursued, entered into, or continued. In Corinth, who would these people be? The people who invited the Corinthian believers to meals in their pagan temples were idol worshipers. And Paul has already instructed the Corinthian believers about how to handle their questions concerning whether or not to eat food offered to idols back in 1 Corinthians 8. And it goes both ways. Making distinctions for fellow believers whose consciences were what he calls weak. So now in 2 Corinthians, he is addressing the broader issue of that problem, of not just eating, but being pulled back into idol worship as part of the culture's normal practice. In other words, this was this city's normal way to live. In other words, everybody did it. This pullback didn't just mean being in a pagan worship service. There was a way of living in Corinth accepted by almost all of its inhabitants that was diametrically opposed to living as a child of God in Christ. We think we have it tough. These people had it really tough. In other words, Paul is helping the Corinthians see and understand that they must be quick to discern the deception that they encounter either in word or in deed. And what that means is that they must refuse to be partners with those who practice deceit. Instead, their task is to expose deception. Not in a grandiose jerk way, but in a way that brings glory to their God. And that what that means is that this deception is the work of the enemy. So this is easier said than done, just like in our day, isn't it? And I know every one of us is sitting here going, I wish he'd just write down and tell me what I should actually do about this. How about a letter to me? We've got a letter. And that's how he works in us to do this, making us more like him. As we have to work through these things. Corinth, by the way, was a very large and prosperous prosperous commercial city. It hosted even hosted a biennial sporting event that drew huge crowds from all over the Mediterranean world. It was a Roman colony and the capital of Achaea, and its Brass and pottery were famous all over the Roman world. Anybody was anybody had something brass and some pottery from there. Its geographic location, however, was its main feature since the north-south trade route and the east-west west trade route went right through it. But its dark side even brought it more notoriety. It was a center of slave trade with a huge population of slaves and immigrants. And much of the population was mobile and transient. Its immorality was so rampant that the term to Corinthianize meant to commit sexual adultery. Sexual immorality, excuse me, there is a difference. Add to that the incredible wealth of so many involved in this lucrative commercial place. And well, there was absolute need for the growing number of believers to live devoted lives to Christ. In other words, a Christian's life would stand out to anybody they knew. Is it any wonder that in the middle of all that, new believers from so many different backgrounds would face so many important issues? And yet, it's just because so many of these believers' lives changed that others were coming to Christ as they heard the Gospel and saw what God did in these people's lives. Knowing this, and Paul writes in verses 14, 14 through 16 here, a powerful description of who we are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? Let's turn these these questions around a little bit. This is eye-opening. Being delivered from lawlessness, we now are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is no partnership between the two. Darkness and its deeds are uncovered or exposed with the light of Christ shining through us. There is no fellowship between the two. It's utterly impossible to expect harmony between Christ and Belial, the comprehensive term Paul uses to include all the names of Satan, the devil, highest demon, Antichrist. There is no accord or harmony between Christ and personified evil. Believers must continue to choose faith instead of unbelief. What in common or what portion can a believer have or share with an unbeliever? Believers must not share in the lifestyle of unbelievers. We cannot center our lives, our hopes, our decisions, etc., on anything or anyone else but the Lord. There is no agreement between the temple of God and idols. The idols may be different in our day from then, but idols still abound. God will give you everything you ask for, property, power, claim, health, recognition, and he includes everyone, even those who live in direct opposition to his revealed will in his word. Does that sound familiar? There is no agreement between the true body of Christ and any idols that somebody dreams up or that some quote-unquote, church professes. Many of the Gentile believers in Corinth still dealt with the pull of their previous lifestyle. Who wouldn't? Being God's people, they had to break with their pagan culture and serve God with heart, soul, and mind. And look how Paul sums this up for we are the temple of the living God. God lives in us, as Paul has already written in 1 Corinthians 3 and in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians as well. Notice that while he says the living God lives in us, the pagan idols are dead. Now we think there's not any idols anymore. There are in some places of the world. But Satan's been at work since this. They're a lot more deceptive now in so many ways, are they not? Now we see some Old Testament promises and instructions that should impact us in, from 16 on. And there are four promises. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. It's one, two, and walk among them, three, and I will be their God, four, and they shall be my people. Literally, it is, I will dwell within them here, which is what Paul just said, for we are the temple of God. Second one, God's promise is that his dwelling with his people signifies Peaceful relations. How do we know that? Because he says walking among them indicates benevolent activity. And the third and fourth promise is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We see this throughout Scripture. In other words, God is always with His people from beginning to end, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter how few of us there are, he is always with his people. Even when everything in your life is telling you he's not. He's gone. He doesn't care. In verse 17, this is from a quote from mainly Isaiah, and the context is when the Jewish exiles were permitted to leave Babylon by Cyrus's decree, and God told them not to take along what? What do you think God told them not to take with them as they left captivity? Anything unclean that had anything to do with idol worship, which is what Paul is telling those in Corinth who had come out of the idol worship there. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then we read, Then I will welcome you which emphasizes again the desire of God to see his people living in holiness. He is faithful to his people no matter what, but to know him and truly love and worship him, they must not keep turning their backs on him in disobedience. And that is exactly our problem. We do the same thing in slightly different ways. Verse 18 is a beautiful promise. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Calvin writes, what an affront it is to God for us to call him our father and then to defile ourselves with the abominations of idolatry. Notice the title of God here, Lord Almighty because it reveals the omnipotence of God, which means no one in either heaven or earth can be compared to the Lord. And what's Paul's conclusion in verse 1 of chapter 7? Since, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is our call because this is what God is working in and through us. He's working for our good, and this is it. But we go, I want to sign up for that class. I'm free Tuesday and next month. I'll be there. That's not the way it works. And we know that. And we need to try to understand that. And we need to work to see how we can do this in the age in which we live with the responsibilities that we have. Because you know what? This is the primary responsibility that we have. We cannot do this in our own strength. But we are responsible to be engaged in doing it because the indwelling spirit Allows us, points things out to us, makes the word alive for us. There are many graces, the means of grace that God gives us. And notice that this is not just an external cleaning, but it's an inward spiritual thought and attitude cleaning as well. The best example of that is here we are, we worship, we use God words, Bible words, and we leave and go do something else, and immediately whoever we're with, if we're talking different, if we have bitter attitudes, immediately we got a problem. And it's called you need to repent of this and see who you really are and whether you know who you belong to. That's the issue here. And I don't think I need to list the eerily evil ways, our culture is becoming a mirror image of Corinth just with more deception. Like those believers, we too breathe the same air of godless thinking and living. And that's the best way to say it. The air we breathe has all these ideas that we hate, that we can actually talk about, and they affect us more than any of us realize but we keep jumping back in and then we realize, oh man, why am I thinking that? I bought this before. Or it's okay to be bitter. Or It's okay to do the thing in your face if you're an athlete. It's okay to cuss every time you get a chance. It's okay, it's okay because everybody's doing it, right? Not everybody is doing it. And like it or not, It's quite easy for the air we breathe to make more of an impression on our thoughts and behavior than we are ready to admit. We live in a time which demands that the people of God reflect the light of the gospel in Christ in every area of our lives and in every word we speak and in our thoughts, our dreams, our goals, our attitudes, our relationships, our language, our Body behavior, you know. How can people tell what you're really thinking? Body language. The Lord is working mightily in the midst of this rebellion against Him. His grace saved us and will equip us to live before others in ways that point to everyone's need of the only Savior. We must come to grips with who we really belong to. That's the bottom line. And that means devotion every day to realizing our purpose for being here. And it is not just following a bunch of rules and regulations and speaking okay at home and then going out and doing something completely different. That's not it. That's deception. Our God uses every detail of this life to display His grace and goodness as we recognize more and more His sanctifying fine work in our lives and His provision and faithfulness in all the everyday stuff we all face. Adults, this is tough. If it's tough for us who grew up little before other people in this room, How tough is it for those that are growing up in it now? So if they don't see a difference in us, it's disaster. And even if they do see a difference in us, it gives you a way to minister to what they're going through. And we've got to understand that stuff that we went through in college, kids are now going through in below middle school age. And we didn't handle it very well in college. We need to pray, we need to go before our God and cry out for his work in our own hearts and for the kids in here, and for the people that are in between all these categories that we're giving. Because God hears our cries. And I personally had the view that in the day in which we live right now, a Christian life shines so much brighter because it is so much darker. And you don't have to be a a celebrity or a power person. You can be who God made you to be and make a difference in people's lives that nobody else may ever even hear about. That is so wonderful. That's what it's all about because God is faithful to his people. And he's raising up people right now, many sitting right before me, who he will use in ways that will just blow our minds. And we need to realize that and help them grow knowing him. What's the question that Jesus asked? When the guy said, well, well tell me how to get in. Well, well, right. And he said, sorry, I don't know you. Do we know the Lord God Almighty? One verse. If you want to read a larger exposition of this passage, you can go to Romans and I mean Ephesians and read chapter 5. That'll take way too long. So I'm going to read Colossians 1:13. <laughs> Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That says it all. Please bow for prayer. Oh God, how we need you. We bow our heads before you now to acknowledge our need. Ask that you keep us on track as you sanctify us for your purposes. Thank you for your church and the incredible privilege we have of growing together in you. Keep us hungry for your word Protect our hearts and minds as we seek to worship you and serve you in this life. You are our Father, and we are your sons and daughters. We belong to you. Christ has purchased us with his blood, his own blood, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.